All right, we're going to cover the last two chapters, 21 and 22. 21, you can sum it up by saying, literally, all things made new. That's what chapter 21 is literally about. Chapter 22, part of it's the river of life. Part of it is uh, a return to Eden, uh, a recreation, if you will. So let's look at what God has for us. And just as a recap, whoops. The last time we got together, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but we, we kind of dealt with Revelation 20. Actually, we dealt with, I think, 18, 19, and 20. But um, what we learned from Revelation 20 was Satan is cast into the pit for a thousand years, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20. During the same 1,000 years, Jesus reigns over the earth physically for a thousand years, verses 4 and 6. So righteousness reigns, that could be a capital R. Everything Jesus does during this thousand years will be perfectly righteous. He will do what no human government has ever been able to do. Never. And that's been part of God's plan, to let humanity do whatever they want. Are they going to rely on Him, or are they not going to rely on Him? And it's amazing when you read through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the other prophetic books, how many of these nations cease to exist? There are no Philistines today. I don't know of any Amalekites today. I mean, they're gone because they continued steadfastly to not do what God wanted them to do. He gave everyone endless opportunities, it seems like, and they always rebelled. They always failed, and they always dishonored God. And the worst part of that is the nation that he created, Israel, did the same thing. But there will be a turning around point for them, and for some of the other nations like Egypt, which is really interesting. All right, so after 1,000 years, we learned that Satan is released. And of course, he does what Satan does. He gathers humanity, as many as will listen to him, through his deception and his beauty and his wisdom, and they will all join him in a final rebellion against Christ. And then that will be put down, of course. <laughs> it just you, you have to wonder. It's like, well, I guess you can give him credit for not giving up if you want to say it that way, but the reality is he doesn't learn his lesson. He will learn his lesson. This is Satan's final lesson. He also then will be tossed into the great white throne. Excuse me, the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment occurs in, in uh, verses 11 through 15 where all non-saved people will basically be told why they are going to the lake of fire. So it will be completely clear to them. There will be no questions from them. They will have perfect understanding as to what they did not do, which was they rejected Christ forever in this life. And because of that, that decision to consistently, continually reject Jesus while they were living bought them, unfortunately, the one-way ticket to the lake of fire. It's pretty sad. But we all know people like that, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, I have family members... <clears throat> It's so funny. I had family members when I was growing up, Sylvia and I were talking about this the other day, I didn't even know they were Democrats. Until I got, I'm, I'm 
I'm now 66, and I'm looking at some of my family members, and I'm realizing now it makes all sense. All, all the, the stuff that they taught, all the feelings they felt, all the views they hold, it's because they're way over here on the left, and they, they also go to church, but the churches they go to um, are not the type of doctrinally correct churches that I would go to, but, but there's so much feelings based into it. It's like, they feel this. They, like, I, I remember asking my cousin years ago, um, he goes, I just, we were talking about God and Christ and, you know, hell and heaven. He goes, oh, I don't believe God will send anybody to hell. And I said, really? And he goes, no, because God is too loving to do that. And I, you know, you've heard it before. And, and you just kind of shake your head. But now as an adult, I realize, I told Sylvia, I said, you know, it's unfortunate because I feel like with a lot of the family members that are still alive, I don't have anything really in common with them. And that's sad. Mm -hmm. So when you get together, you just talk about piddling stuff that doesn't really mean anything. Anyway. Well, let's get into Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Uh, this is from the New King James Version. Now I saw a new heaven. Of course, this is John talking. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give you, excuse me, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a mouthful. That's a ton of stuff that God is showing John here, that John writes, <coughs> the world, uh, sorry, so what we're seeing here is, first thing is, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And, you know, it's funny how Bible scholars will debate and argue about stuff like this. Um, some believe that God is just reworking this creation, this earth. He's making it cleaner. He's making it better. But really, I'm, I'm not held that view myself because it seems like the majority of conservative scholars say that God is literally going to destroy, as Peter says, 
everything's going to melt up with this melt with this fervent heat, and then God is going to create anew. So He's going to create a brand new heavens and a new earth, and will come in existence after the millennial kingdom. During the millennial kingdom, when it starts, there are, Christ is obviously cleaning things up. But after the great the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years, and the great white throne judgment, God is going to create new heavens and a new earth. And it all makes sense, which I'll show you in a minute, uh, why it's a new creation. So God had created the first heavens and earth for a place for humanity to thrive. If we think about the Garden of Eden, everything was in perfect harmony. I don't know if the animals talked, or what language they may have used, if they were dogs and barked, but I'm sure Adam had a way to understand them and they him, because he was, he was told, rule over this creation. So everything in the first creation was perfectly beautiful. And it was designed totally for all creation to thrive. And we know what happened. It became corrupted by sin. And sin worked its way. Christ talks about sin working, you know, like leaven through the dough. It gets every place. There's nothing it misses. So this current system really is unsavable. The earth is unsavable. Even the heavens have been corrupted. So God is going to completely recreate something new. So, interestingly though, God brings humanity and all of creation into the environment that he had originally intended for us. This is what I love about Genesis is really, it starts with the first creation. Revelation ends with the second creation. And so that's, that's what we look forward to. It's hard for us to envision. It's hard for me to envision. Because I get tired of my sin nature sometimes. And maybe you do as well. I just get tired of it. And if I'm not tired of my sin nature, I get tired of the fact that I don't have a lot of stamina. So I'm tired. So, you know, when I was younger, this didn't seem to be the problem. But anyway, it's what it is. Because you were younger. Yeah, I was younger. (laughs) So God brings humanity and all creation into the environment he had originally intended for us. That was Genesis chapter 1. By Genesis chapter 3, sin had already happened. We know it had already happened because Satan has already fallen. And now he's thinking, hey, if I can get them to fall and sin, I've ruined God's creation. Cool. I can do it. He didn't have a hard time. Because people with free will will generally always gravitate toward doing what they want to do, not what somebody else wants. So all of history, up to the moment of this new creation in Revelation, is literally a parenthesis. It's literally a parenthesis, and it's based on 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12. This is a totally new creation out of nothing. That's where everything is going to burn up with the elements, fervent heat, and God will create all things new. So there are differences, which is really interesting, and we don't have time to go into this. But Isaiah, as I'm sure you're familiar, has a whole bunch of visions that God grants him about all the stuff that's going to happen way down the line, which John is also commenting on. But there are differences between Isaiah's vision and what John sees. And some scholars believe that what is included in Isaiah's vision is 
It's a mixture of the Millennial Kingdom and then after that. He didn't really break it up like John does. So it's really interesting to see that. Um, and like I say, so a number of commentary, commentators believe that Isaiah spoke of the millennium and the time afterward and kind of put them all together in some cases, which makes it difficult for us. It just, you know, because he talks about the lion, um, the, the lion and the ox lying down. And John does too, but then Isaiah will talk about something else that reminds us of the new creation, but doesn't but it seems like he's still talking about the millennium, but he can't be, because when we base it on John, Revelation, we know that it comes after the millennium. So John is, you know what, it's really interesting here. The more I study God's word, and I'm sure, I bet this is the same with you, I honestly feel, I shouldn't say the word feel, I honestly believe that there is quite a bit that God has purposefully left out of here. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it. He's God. A million books could not contain what he knows. But what he's given us is this, which helps us and directs us toward him. But there's so much that's not included in here. And we are left to make our best guess at times and then go from there. But what does Satan do? Satan will turn around and he creates rifts between people because of a specific doctrine, whether it's... I remember when I was growing up, I was a teenager, I was young in Christ, a friend of mine across the street was a Christian. They attended a church that believed if you were not water baptized, even if you were saved, but not water baptized, you weren't really saved. That's what they believed. And... Um, I don't agree with that. I think it's wrong. I think that scripture, I understand how they get to their perspective, but I still believe it's a wrong perspective. But then you have these people at odds because of this stuff. And it's just one way the enemy tears us down. But I guess my point is, some stuff, we're never going to know until we get there. We just won't. Mm -hmm. And that used to drive me crazy. Because I would like to know now. I would really like to know that I know that I know and really have good insight into this stuff. Doesn't the Bible tell us that he hides these things for our own protection? I think so. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think it's intentionally <laughs> biting and ambiguous. It is. It is. And, and the, other que- the other problem, too, is the more he tells us, who else gets to know? Mm-hmm. Satan. Yeah. I mean, really? Well, Satan so, knows that book inside and out. Mm-hmm. Oh, he yeah. knows this book inside and out, absolutely. Yeah. And he still has to judge what's going, what he sees happening in the spiritual realm, which we don't ever get to see. We don't ever get to see that. I mean, maybe God would show somebody something, whatever, but as a general rule, we have no clue what's going in the spiritual realm right now. The spiritual realm is right around us, yeah. all over, but we have no clue what's going on. None. No idea. So... God has given us books like Daniel, where we get a glimpse behind, where Daniel sees into this, and Gideon comes and helps him, and then Gideon explains, well, it took me 21 days to get to you because I was waylaid by the this particular prince, and now when I go back, another prince is going to attack me, and only Michael came to help me. Well, Daniel had no clue. Didn't get to see that, didn't sense it, 
didn't didn't understand it until it was told. But we're better off not knowing, I think, in some ways. Well, we're supposed to be <clears throat> saved by faith. Yeah. And, and we got to, you know, just leave that in his hands. It's not in our yeah. hands. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he gave us this much <clears throat> is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it, it gave us anything, as a Well, it is. And look at the New <coughs> Testament Christians. They didn't have this. Yeah. They didn't have the New Testament. No. They didn't. They had the old. I shouldn't say. Well, they had the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, you know, man didn't really have that scripture until like the fifteen. Uh, Once they started putting the, it together, the press. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the printing press. Yeah. Exactly. They just passed the scrolls around. Well, and yeah, they all wrote the letter. They went to their priest or whatever. Oh, you know, yeah. Wrote the I told that, yeah. uh, you know, they owed the church a this is remuneration. What, right. You know, uh, this is what the Bible says, and they yeah. weren't encouraged to read it for themselves. So we, we get this sense that this new heaven and new earth, we can't fathom. I can't fathom it. Can you? When I go take my dogs walking across in bats, because we have permission to go over there whenever we like, um, a lot of times I'll sit there and I go, I wonder if the rattlesnakes or the copperheads are out. And if they are, I try to make noise to let them know that we're coming so they'll get out of the way. Yeah. But, um, you know, in the new heaven and the new earth, we're not going to have to worry about that. We're not going to be walking through this gorgeous field going, I wonder if there are rattlesnakes here. And if there are, they're, they're not going to be anything for us. Uh, hearing you say this, it occurs to me that there are there may not be dogs, but there may be Excuse something me? else in reports. Excuse me? No, no. Don't listen to him, Scooch. Don't, don't listen to him. Uh, I'm just saying it's a new creation. There are dinosaurs may come back. Yeah, we know. That'd be cool. We're petting the dinosaurs. That'd be you know, cool. Or, I wouldn't mind that. Or riding the dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Well, John is referring solely to the time after the Millennial Kingdom in this particular chapter, whereas, like I say, Isaiah kind of goes back and forth. You see that a lot, not just with Isaiah, but Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They'll be talking about one thing, and then all of a sudden you're going, oh, he must be talking about the Millennium. But they never stop to say, now let's talk about the Millennium. It's just talking about way later, and, he's, and the description he's giving reminds us that, okay, when, when all of Israel's heart is turn to the Lord and they will no more do this and no more do that and never, then we're talking about the Millennial Kingdom or beyond. So that's what we're talking about here in, in 21. And then 9 through 21 verses, John describes the New Jerusalem here. It's very fascinating. It comes down floating out of the sky and this New Jerusalem is part of the new creation not the new, not the Millennial Kingdom. So this is after the Millennial Kingdom when God recreates and then this new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And what is fascinating is, even in Ezekiel um, and other prophets, God always talks about Jerusalem as being the center of His world. Everything emanates from Jerusalem. And I've said this before, if you have Jerusalem here on the map, everything that is east of Jerusalem they write from right to left. Everything west of Jerusalem, including us, we go from left, from you know the left right. to the right. So we're we're always pointing to. I mean, it's just fascinating the way God did that. But Jerusalem is a big deal for God. So when we finally see the new creation, we're going to see the new Jerusalem, and it is adorned like a bride. And of course, commentators 
debate what that really means. How could Jerusalem be his bride? Well, it, it's either the bride here in the verse is either New Jerusalem or the church represented by the New Jerusalem. But in either case, we will be living there. So we are the bride of Christ. We know that. And the Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem is adorned as a bride. So it, it, it's comparable and um, complementary. <clears throat> So in either case, though, the church, we, will live in this new Jerusalem. Which, you know, when, when Christ says in John, what is it, 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I, didn't, if I weren't going to do that, I wouldn't be telling you. And every one of you will have a, a room in my Father's house. There are many, many rooms or many mansions. I go to pre prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you where I am. So, or receive you to where I am. So, you know, they, every bit of that is Jewish. It's Hebrew. It's the you know, the, the, the wedding. Oh yeah, yeah. It's all. It's all. The, yeah, the yeah. son going and preparing oh, yeah. a, a room at the father's house, and yeah. only the father can approve. So, and tell the son to go get the bride, and the father doesn't tell him when the date when he can go get yeah, the bride. Exactly. Only the until, father knows. Only the father knows until the Jewish father says, "Okay, today's the day, son." And then he goes get the bride. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is fascinating. So that's uh, that's that part. Now the new the new Jerusalem. I mean, this is a fascinating thing. It's surrounded by this great wall, a tremendously large wall. And you would think, well, why does Jerusalem need a wall? I think it's mainly for adornment, mm -hmm. for beauty. It certainly yeah. doesn't need to be protected because God protects it. So it has twelve gates. There you go, with twelve angels each named after the 12 tribes of Israel. So we've got this huge wall, which has 12 gates all around it, each one representing one of the 12 tribes. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, one pearl per gate. So we're not talking about little pearls like this. We're talking about a huge piece of pearl, or a pearl that is one large piece yeah. that is a gate. <clears throat> and the streets are made of gold like transparent glass. The wall has 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that Judas is not included in that, but that's just my guess. So I'm going to... Some people, some people believe Matthias was the guy, and others believe that Paul is the guy. And I tend to think it's Paul because... Because of his work. I'm sorry? Because of his... Well, yeah, because Jesus specifically chose Paul on the road to Damascus. Whereas for Matthias, they drew lots, which was an Old Testament way of doing things. But that's Peter. Peter kind of, in my view, kind of jumped the gun. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. We'll find out when we get there. But I'm pretty sure it's not going to be Judas. I can't imagine that. That would be like, Note to Nar. New Apostolic Reformation. There are only 12 apostles. I don't know if you've never heard of the Apostolic Reformation today. It's an offshoot of the charismatic movement, how it's morphed over the years. They claim to have 500 living apostles today, 500, and a whole bunch of true prophets. And all of them, the apostles and the prophets, all have the same authority, they say, as the original 12 apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament. So this is the kind of stuff that we have today which, in my mind, creates a lot of deception and heresy and errant view of scriptures. 
But anyway, the size of the city, this is fascinating, 1,500 miles wow. on each side. That's huge. Oh, yeah. It's 2 million square miles. Yeah. That's how many? That's 2 amazing. million. That's amazing. You know the plain of Megiddo where the um, Battle of Armageddon is to take place? It's 1,600 miles long. And that whole thing is, we've already studied this, but that whole thing is going to fill up with blood to the horse's bridle. Yeah. That's a long 1,600 miles. Yeah. So here you've got Jerusalem, which is, again, commentators aren't sure if it's going to be in the shape of a cube or a pyramid, but they, many of them believe it's going to be a cube because that's the way the um, um, Holy of Holies, sorry. Yeah. Ark of the Covenant, it's a cube. So they believe that Jerusalem could be a cube. 1,500 miles each side, although if it's each side exactly, it's going to actually be more like a square, but it could be a pyramid. 1,500 miles high. That's huge. Yeah. So what that means is there's going to be a lot of people who have gone through this life who received our Lord as Lord and Savior and who will be living here in Jerusalem and this place needs to be big enough for all of the people of all time, since the beginning of time to the end of time, who received Jesus as Savior and who will be living in the New Jerusalem. So that to me is like, okay, that's huge, which means there's going to be a ton of people there. And the cool part is it won't feel overcrowded, and I'm sure neighbors won't get on each other's nerves. So it'll be pretty cool. I remember as a kid going to the Bronx in New York and you see these high-rise tenement buildings and it's just amazing, you know, people living there. I mean, most when I was young, you know, people got along. The kids would play uh, baseball on the street or something, which was interesting, but they did. And... Probably still did. Yeah, they probably did. They probably did. So in my view, you may disagree, but in my view, I think it's best to interpret these as literal dimensions. They're really specific. They're very specific. Alright, this is also interesting. There is no temple in this New Jerusalem because the Lamb and the Lord Almighty are its temple. We don't need a temple because God is the temple. We don't see Him now. We will see Jesus and the Shekinah glory in eternity. There's no need of the sun or the moon. God's glory, the Shekinah glory, illuminates it. Those of all nations who are saved shall walk in the city. I mean, that's going to be millions and millions and millions of souls. Millions and millions of people that we will walk up to and be immediately connected to because of our connection in Christ. Immediately. It will be eternally day. There will be no night there. Makes sense. Nothing that is even remotely sinful will ever go. Sin is done. By this point, sin is absolutely done. It's over. There will be no arguments. Nobody will try to steal anything from it. Nothing. No one will speak against God. No one will speak against His name. It's gone. I, I can't picture that. Because I know me too well. So, this is what God meant for Eden. That's exactly what he meant for Eden. But it took thousands of years for us to go from the original Eden to the second Eden for God's plan in the fullness of time to work itself out. And we know from Eden, the perfect state, 
where Adam and Eve were perfect physical human beings, but taken down by sin, which captured ultimately the entire world and marred God's creation. That happened. So God is redoing what he originally began, and when he does it again, it will exist as he created it into perpetuity for all eternity. That's amazing. So I just kind of threw this together. God created here Eden. Not long, we don't know how long it was. Then there's the fall. And just a couple of highlights, milestones, the crucifixion, the millennium, great white throne, and then the new heavens and the new earth. God recreated, that is the new eternal Eden from that point onward. This is God's plan for all the ages. This did not have to happen from there to there. It should not have happened, but God allowed it. Why? What do you think? Why did God allow it? He loves us. He loved us. And because He loved us, He wanted us to see and experience His love. And He wanted not just us, but the entire universe to see His love and understand it. And understand that sin is never, while it might seem like it has victories here and there, it's never ultimately victorious. God always wins. God always reigns. Now, 22. Let's see how quickly we can get through. Oh, we got time. Eden is restored. Seems kind of warm in here, no? It is a little bit. I'm going to go turn it down. Yeah, I don't want to disturb you. Be right back. Stay. Good boy. Good boy. How good I'm stretching it now. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm going to have a seat when I come back. Yeah, you lost your seat, so. <laughs> when, we, when we got him, he was only half that size. A river of life runs through the city in Genesis, sorry, Revelation 22, 1-5. I'm going to turn there. I'm not going to read the whole text, but, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So here is God's throne in this new Eden. From the base of God's throne comes this river of water of life, clear as crystal. Verse 2 says, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. And we know that from the original Garden of Eden. Which, fortunately for us, Adam and Eve never got to partake of it, because as God said, the second would have been worse than the first. They would have lived forever in their sinful state. So, this particular tree of life bears 12 fruit. Each tree, so there may be more than one tree, or each yielding its fruit every month. So we're not going to have the kind of seasons that we have where the fall is good to plant this crop, the spring is good to plant this crop, you can plant certain summer crops. This tree, the tree of life, is going to have 12 different fruits on it, and it will yield those fruits every month. Every month. And notice this also in verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. Interesting. I wonder why we have that. And there, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. 
and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now, I find this fascinating because in Revelation 13 that we've gone over, what does the false prophet mandate for everybody? A mark. And that mark is going to be on your forehead or on your, your hand. And without that mark, you don't get to do what? Buy or sell. So it's another counterfeit because Satan looked ahead in this book and knew that, oh, oh, they're going to have, oh, they're going to have Jesus' name on their forehead. I can do that. I can do that. During that seven-year tribulation, I can do that. I'll make, the Antichrist is going to do that. It's going to force everybody to do it. The false prophet will get it going. Everybody will have to do it. And then eventually those who don't will be executed. It's all counterfeit. We know that the entire Antichrist, false prophet, Satan, is a false trinity happening during the seven-year tribulation. So, here's this river of life that runs through the city coming from God's own throne. And the tree of life that existed only temporarily in Eden will exist forever in the New Jerusalem, so we can eat of it as often as we want to. Won't that be fascinating? I'm looking forward to a peach. Because yeah. Georgia peaches are absolutely the best, so I can only imagine what heaven's peaches are like. It will provide 12 fruits perpetually. Its purpose is to sustain... That should be immortality, I apologize. <laughs> Not immorality. I left a T off there. One letter can really change the world. Yeah, that's, uh, that's ugly right there. That is. I will change this before I put it up. So, I thought Sam wasn't going to be there. Oh, my. <laughs> The more you eat of the tree of life, the more that happens. Now, sustained immortality, yes. And healing here means literally health-giving. It will continue our health. Not that we really need to be healed from disease or sickness, because that's not going to be in existence. So partaking of this tree will be a regular part of our worship and fellowship with God. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. I think it is. There will be no more curse. Right now we know that we live in a cursed, cursed world. Mm-hmm. Everything about this. Mm-hmm. It's sad. <clears throat> and, and we feel it. You know? It makes us tired. <sighs> When's this going to be? Like, you know, I'll drive through the country roads and I see a dog standing in the middle of the road. So I slow my car down and wait till the dog goes off. Try to talk to the dog and they look at you like, I don't know you. Go away, you know, and that that won't be there. That won't be there. Whatever is there, whatever animals are there, and it will be dogs. So. Whatever <laughs> animals are there, I just said it's cross That they'll they'll be like this one. Well, no, not really. They'll be like yours when they react to you. So this curse will have been lifted by God. That's all part of the new creation. Because God put the curse after man sinned. There's no sin, so there's no need to curse. And the curse is actually, it's a curse, but it's to our benefit. We're cursed and we will die. That's actually a good thing. Because in dying, we go on to the next life. So there will be no more sin of any kind. 
we will serve Jesus perfectly and forever. Again, I cannot imagine, imagine what that feels like, to serve him perfectly. I can't. Forever, okay. Yeah, it just goes on and on. But I mean, I, I can't imagine doing his perfect will without even really thinking about it, just automatically doing it. We will behold his face. That, to me, is absolutely amazing. I mean, sometimes I read the scriptures and I read when I get to the New Testament, Imagine, what what did he sound like? His voice was gentle. When he was not happy with the scribes and Pharisees, he was angry. What, how did, you know, I mean, we know that he sometimes overturned the tables and created a whip and chased the money changers, so he was angry, righteously. But more often than not, even that was love. He was disciplining. But more often than not, he was just gentle to people, caring, loving, embracing, not necessarily physically, but he, people wanted to come to him. So I can't imagine looking into his face <coughs> and know what that's like. His name will be on our foreheads. No current tattoo will ever compete with that. It'll be something he puts on us. Which also means what? That he owns us. Yeah. And we are happy about that. We are blessed because of it. There will be no more night because the Lamb provides the light through his glory, his shining glory. The time is near. I love how Revelation, John hears this over and over. Write, for the time is near. Say this, the time is near. Do this because the time is near. And it's difficult for us because we think, what well, 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 that was 2,000 years ago. What does he mean the time is near? What it means is, if this is time from here to here, and here over there, that is eternity. All this around it is eternity. Then God is in eternity, meaning he's so near. Anytime at the appointed hour, he will come into time and deal with it. But he is always near, always ready. We don't know the day or the hour. He does, and he will tell Jesus when it's time. But he's always near. He's not far away. And notice this promise. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And what, what that tells me is, and there is a blessing for it, is we should always look forward to his eventual physical return, whenever that happens. And it may be that we leave this earth in our dying bodies behind it and we go to him. Either way, either way, we should always look forward to that. Because this is not our permanent home. We think of Beth and how she just peacefully passed one morning and she was looking out over her lake across the road and she closed her eyes here and woke up in his presence it was a very easy passing from what I understand so she's with him and whether he comes to get us or we go to him we should look forward to that we should study it, live by it, literally embrace it. 
so that, as Peter says, people will see that we have something different, and they go, "What? What do you? What? What is about? What is this hope you have? What is going on with you?" And then we can say, "Oh, well, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I'm looking forward to being with Him one day." And that will either elicit, like, "Oh, you're one of those idiots," or, "Really? Tell me some more." Notice John is told not, this is interesting, not in verse 10, to seal up the words. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. There it is again. Don't seal it up. Leave it open. Leave it available for people to read. Now, this is so different from Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, 4 where he is basically told, Daniel, go your way. Because Daniel's like, um, I don't understand a lot of this. I, I just, I can't make heads or tails out of this. And he's told, Daniel, go your way. It's not for you. It's for the people in the latter days. Seal up the vision. Because people will be running to and fro to gain knowledge. So that's what, and we'll get into this more when we get into Daniel. But here in Revelation, John is told, do not seal this up. Leave it open, leave it available, tell people about it, because the time is near. John was to leave the book open because the time of its fulfillment was near. Again, near. It's always near from God's perspective. For us, not so much. I remember when I was in, in the as a teenager and in my early 20s and the 70s, there was a big prophecy movement happening then. And people were constantly talking about the rapture, the tribulation, the this, that, and the other thing. And there were all these conferences always happening. And I got caught up in it myself. That's what gave me my first interest in prophecy. But that was how many years ago? Didn't happen yet. And now it's starting a new resurgence because of the way things are going on earth. But I kind of smile a little bit when I see these guys putting out these new videos. <laughs> and invariably their title will be something like, you're not going to believe this. And then you listen to it and it's like, <coughs> I already knew that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like it's coming around again. So, But the point is, as far as God is concerned, it's always near because he is in the eternal presence. So the cross of Christ is always before him. Our lives, beginning to end, are always before him. He sees everything that ever has taken place, that is taking place, or that will take place on our human timeline. He sees that all happening at the same time because he is in the eternal presence. And yet he can completely differentiate between every act, every word, every instance, which is absolutely astounding to me, but that's why he is God. So as far as God is concerned, it is always near. Not as far as we're concerned, but we should begin to look at things like, well, wait a minute, yeah, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to be alive next week. What happened to Doug? God forbid, it could have killed him. Easily could have killed him. But he didn't wake up that day going, Man, you know, today's the day it feels like I'm going to get hit by a truck. <laughs> we just go through life and we think we're going to live forever. 
and or at least to a nice long old age and then we'll just go to sleep one day and then that'll be it. We don't really know. Artists tend to cover their in-progress work until it is complete and can be unveiled. So this is kind of what you know Daniel was doing. He was kind of covering, he was told to cover things up, seal it up, close it up, don't let people talk about it now because it really doesn't apply to them so much. It's way on down the line. So this is, John is the exact opposite. Now things are done. The artist can now take off the cover and show you the completed image, whether a painting or a sculpture. And you can wow. You can go, wow, it's beautiful. So Jesus' words to the church. There it is again. He is coming quickly. Verse, uh, let me read verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy. In other words, you live your life the way you think best and just let the chips fall where they may. That's the way most people live their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the way people... You know, I, I read how many people you know die from this, that, or the other thing, <coughs> and they're dead. And it's amazing the way they're remembered. I watch, um, what is it, Legacy.com. They put out a video, usually once a week, uh, deaths in the news. So I always watch it. And I, I, I think about these people who are known for what they did in this life. And every time I look at it, Sylvia and I will look, we'll go, okay, so when they stand before God, but you Lord, Tupperware. I created Tupperware, but Lord, I created a really good tent peg, and I built a huge company, and I made millions off of that. Isn't that fascinating? That's, what that's the way the world remembers these people. And, and Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, Jimmy Buffett, Parrothead, Margaritaville. Neil Peart, drummer for the uh, rock group Rush. Yeah. He was a brilliant young man, both in playing drums and creating <laughs> lyrics for their music. But he's now dead, and he gets to stand before God and have his life replayed, especially the part when he was 17 years old and he wrote on something, lockers at school, God is dead. And that guided his life. So you sit there and you go, okay, well, just live as you're living then. He will reward us based on their work, a reference to how we followed his will for our lives. This is not a reference to earning salvation. Right. He is coming quickly. There it is again. He is coming quickly with haste. He is coming. It may not seem like that to us. Well, it's only two days for him. I'm sorry? It's two nights. Oh, yeah. I mean, a thousand years to a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A day to a thousand years. God's yeah, eternal, so... Right. I mean, oh, yeah, so in other words, a thousand years is exactly like well, a day. I mean, God. we're talking about mankind. The history of man is going to be <coughs> 7,000 years long. That's... Yeah, seven to ten. Yeah, I know. Uh, for God, that's not a whole lot. That's, that's nothing. That's not that's very nothing. long. That's a yeah. drop in the bucket, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So to do His commandments literally is better rendered. Wash their robes. Some translations actually say wash their robes. That means those who have salvation. That's us. 
So all truly saved people will enter into his kingdom and the new Jerusalem, as I mentioned. And verse 15 basically says, but outside are dogs, I'm sorry, and sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. None of those people will get into the new creation simply because they will not have salvation because they preferred... And Paul talks about this in Romans. You think they'll be able to see it? Sorry? See it from the lake of fire? You know, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me either. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But what's interesting, when Paul talks in Romans, he said they had no love for the truth. They had no love for the truth. And that's these people. So because they have no love for the truth, they find themselves doing all kinds of things that is the antithesis, the opposite of truth. All right. Adding to God's word, this is a warning, will result in being cast out of God's presence. This speaks of, by the way, deliberate distortions and perversions of his prophetic word. The sense here is not that Jesus is not talking about mechanical errors as the it was copied by scribe and passed down, or in transmit errors in transmission, or unintentional mistakes in judgment in interpreting the message. We're all guilty of that. You know? We're all guilty of it. There's not one person, including myself, that can say, I am right about everything <laughs> I believe about his word. We just can't say that. We can't say that. And that should actually draw us closer together, but often it pushes us further apart. So he's speaking to those people specifically who deliberately go about adding or deducting or changing, misinterpreting the message for the purposes of deceiving. And we have a bunch of people like that. Yes, that we been, Oh, they, they, oh man. I could name them, you could name them. And they've been around every generation. They're, it's getting worse, though, <clears throat> from what I can see. It's just, they're just getting much, much more blatant. And that's because the left has the microphone right now. So God will send plagues on those people. Believers will, believers who deliberately did this stupidity will probably lose part of their reward. They will not lose their salvation if they're authentically saved, but they will lose reward. We will lose reward if we go that route. Unbelievers will have no participation in the creation. They'll be burning. That's sad. That is so sad. And Sam, again, it would not surprise me if they see where we are from where they are. wouldn't surprise me at all. So Jesus reminds us he's coming quickly and we should always be ready for his return enough to say, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We should have that mindset all the time. God's grace is forever with us as his children. And notice the last word of Revelation and in essence the entire Bible is verse 21 with the word Amen, which literally means so be it. So be it. It will happen. It will come to pass. That's Revelation. I have a page that I'm going to pass out to you that you can take home. But this... Read material, software. There you go. <laughs> this is... I'd like you to become familiar with this before next week. Um, this is the book of Daniel. And 
these are how the chapters line up if we put them in chronological order. So you go 1, 2, 3, 4, then 7, then 8, 5, 6, then 9, 10, 11, 12. The ones in the middle are slightly out of order. I don't know why God did it that way, but I'm sure he had a reason. But commentators, conservative commentators have looked at this, and they thought, oh, okay, this actually happens before this. And God does that a lot. I mean, when you look at Ezekiel or Jeremiah, it's not that there are mistakes, but it's more like the prophet was speaking parenthetically for a minute. So, for instance, um, if I said... If I was giving you directions and I said, all right, you go down, you go down this road, make a right at the end. You know where that gas station is? Yeah, I remember when my uncle bought that gas station. And he gets off on a little bit of a tangent, and then he'll come back to that and say, okay, after you pass the gas, that's kind of what's happening here in Scripture. It doesn't mean anything's wrong. It just means the vernacular of the day, that's what they did. So chapters 1 through 6 are historical. Uh, chapters... 2, 4 through 7, 8, or 7, 28 is to the nations. And it's interesting because that part is in Aramaic. And I can share with you. Okay. <coughs> you want your own problem. <laughs> so that part is Aramaic, which is really interesting. The original language is Aramaic, not Hebrew there. And then in chapter 7 through Just 12. Just those chapters? Yes. Are in Aramaic? Uh, pardon me? Just those chapters in there, mate? Right? So like he starts writing in Hebrew? No. Then he switches to Aramaic? Yeah, in chapter 2, starting with verse 4, and then through 7 to verse 28. We'll, we'll get into it. Okay. So, and then <laughs> chapters 7 through 12 is apocalyptic or predictive, and then Daniel 1, and then I said 8 through 12. Yeah, 8 through 12 is to the Jewish people. And this timeline along the bottom, by the way, is um, chapter, it uh, starts the timeline for Daniel, the book being written. It was written from about 605 B.C. to about 536 B.C. So we're talking about what? 70, 80 years? That's how long it took to write it. And what's fascinating about this book, we're going to get into that too, is that modern day critics, you know those higher critics, they think they know everything. They, think, they have agreed that the book of Daniel is exceedingly accurate. Extremely accurate, historically. Then they say, well, there can only be one, one reason it's that accurate. It's because it was written by somebody after all this took place who went by the name Daniel. That's how they say that. So we know that that's incorrect, but we'll get into some of this. Any questions? Comments? Anything? All right, I will um, 